Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Guys, this episode is so beautiful, it's almost undescribable. It is spectacular, truly. I was blown away. I was not familiar with David Gronoski. He reached out to me on Twitter, and I just said, hey, this idea sounds cool. Let's have you come on and talk about it. And I did, um, man, I'm so grateful that I took him up on it because it it really, really changed my perspective on things. And I think you guys are going to love it. Um, I just wanted to do a quick thank you to everybody that bought shirts. It's really just amazing the amount of support I'm getting. Um, If anybody else wants to, it is teespring.com backslash liberty dash lockdown dash podcast. And you guys could get some for yourselves too. Like I said, I'm just trying to spread the message, and I'm not sure anybody does a better job of it than who I had on today. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have another special guest today. We have a radio commentator. His name is David Gornoski. David, if you could tell the audience who and what you're about. Well, thank you for having me, and I've heard a lot of great things. I've enjoyed your podcast, and uh, I I think we're going to have a great discussion. I, uh, I have a radio show, as you mentioned. It's called A Neighbor's Choice. Our website's a neighborschoice.com. We, we've got old-fashioned FM and AM radio, uh, and there's that idea of something that has stood the test of time. You know, they said radio was going to be killed by the video star in the 80s, but here it is all these years later. It's still going, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so we like time-tested medium, so we, we use radio, but we also are on podcasts and video stream and so forth. So I think we're going to have a good discussion. Well, what's the uh, the podcast called again? Now, our, we, so our radio show is called A Neighbor's Choice, and then our podcast is called Things Hidden, Okay, which is it. a reference to the book by Rene Girard called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And both of those you can find if you just search for my, my name, David Gronoski. I didn't know what to call my show. I was like, wait, I do A Neighbor's Choice radio, but I also do Things Hidden, and then I do other random podcasts. I'm like, all right, I'll just put my name there as and maybe there's a better way to do it. But, you know, if you just type in David Gronoski on iTunes or whatever you use, you can find all these shows. Perfect. Well, you reached out to me with a, a very interesting concept. Of, you called it uh, mimetic theory. So uh, I'll just set you up and let you run, and then we'll talk about it. Well, yeah. I mean, mimetic theory is something that I've been trying to, you know, help popularize in political context. Because I think, particularly for the liberty movement, there's a lot to, to, to take from mimetic theory. Uh, it was created by a, a late anthropologist, a professor out of Stanford U- University named Rene Girard. He was a member of the French Academy. He was considered to be, by some, to be the Copernicus of social sciences. I mean, it's a pretty tall claim, you know, so it better back up, right? Uh, some people called him the Darwin of social science and so forth. And what he did was he created a, a unified theory uh, that would kind of unite psychology and sociology, anthropology, the study of literature, comparative mythology, a lot of audacious connections he made. But, you know, I think folks in the liberty movement, they like iconoclasts. They like people who don't stay in their lane. They like people who are wild and and go for it all and try to make it make sense of the truth no matter where it goes. And I think there's a lot of currency 
that could be gleaned from studying mimetic theory and Rene Girard um, because it, it has a lot of insights into the things that uh, folks in the liberty movement are really concerned about. Things like, why do we have violence? Why do we have collective violence? Why do we have tribalism? Why do we have, uh, you know, this incessant rivalry? You know, if you're someone that doesn't fit in the left-right paradigm, it feels like you're talking to a brick wall when you try to introduce another kind of thought, right? Well, Rene Girard helps us see what is the social uh, phenomena behind why it is that people get so glued together based on their conflict, right? Based, it's like they're obsessed with one another and they don't have time for somebody else saying, hey, hey guys, I think I can help solve your problems. They're like, no, get this guy out of the way. You know, they'll unite and scapegoat that guy out of the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, boom. Don't mess with them in the middle of a standoff. And uh, so that's, that, that can be understood from the lens of mimetic theory. Now, it, it just at the start, mimetic theory is different from the meme theory. Meme is something else. It's similar uh, uh, Richard Dawkins did stuff on meme theory and the mimetic memes and genes and that kind of thing. Um, but there is some overlap with those things. You know, those are root words are very similar and mimetic means just simply to imitate, right? It means to copy like where we get the word mime and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the idea is, is that it's what Gerard is saying is it's not just that we copy rote behavior. Like if I go and then you do it back at me, or if I, you know, flick you the finger, you flick it back at me in the traffic, whatever. It's not just that rote imitation that we do. We also desire what we perceive other people desiring. So we, we have an, we, we want to copy what we see them wanting, not just what they're literally doing. So keeping up with the Joneses type mentality. Right. Yeah. So we're trying to keep up with the Joneses and that's so much of what makes up our sense of self is we believe, you know, Gerard called it the romantic lie of the self. Now that may step on toes in the Liberty community because, you know, there's a big emphasis on the individual, but I don't think that they're incompatible. Okay. Actually, I think it would help the Liberty movement to think of the self with a little bit more nuance. Not that, not that there's not already conversations like this. I mean, you have folks who are Buddhists who are libertarians, right? And they understand that the self is, is not quite, you know, this absolute thing that it's, Mm -hmm. it's an illusion in some sense, right? The Buddhists would say Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way, not the same, but in a similar way, Gerard would say that so much of who we think we are is actually constructed by those around us and that the desires that we have and the, the sense of self that we have, that, that our self is actually uh, a kind of amalgamation of desires and role models that we have picked up along the way like sponges. And we've kind of constructed them into a, into a kind of coherent narrative of who David is. I am David, and this is what I am like, and this is what I want to achieve, and this is what I'm known for, and, and this is how I deal with conflict. All these things are, in, are Gerard would say, we're interdividual. Mm. We, are, we are interdependent on each other for who we are in our sense of self. Mm-hmm. And that's through mimesis this copying of desires where, you know, we have basic needs that are, that are met on the instinctual level, like food, shelter, reproduction, right. You know, staying away from a storm, you know, the, the, the newborn is not newborns don't need to be taught to go for the mother's breast when they're born, Um, you know, newborn, but at the same time, newborns and human beings are wired to imitate. They say, I think, Within eight seconds after birth, it's been demonstrated that the newborn is imitating the, um, you know, the tongue motion of the of people who are receiving them. 
So we are hardwired to be super mimetic. Other animals are mimetic, but not quite to the degree that we are. And it's, it, it mediates so much because of our brains. We are, we are like master copycats and mm -hmm. we are totally absorbing everything. That's why, you know, there's a lot of sensationalism around the old stories of the, uh, of the, um, you know, the feral children, you know, the animals, people that were left out in the wild when they were mm -hmm. young mm -hmm. and they have a hard time socializing, but there's the jungle book. <laughs> some, some of that is, was, what was that? <laughs> the jungle book. Yeah, exactly. But some of that is, I mean, there's a lot of legends there, but there's also some that's actually based in some real evidence that if children are left without human contact for a, at an early enough age and for a long enough period of time, that it's very difficult to ever break through that, that, that wall that is, that is built up mimetically because of the antisocial nature of where they were at. Right. They can't, you know, they, they talk about eating, you know, you know, meat, you know, raw meat and not wanting to sit at a table. And you hear these stories about how difficult it was to get folks to, to be socialized and to learn language and to, to move into that. If they didn't have that early, if, if, if that early period of, of a childhood was disrupted in some way, and that can happen, not just in a sensational story, like being left in the wild, but also, you know, you know, abuse situations where kids sure. are left in a room, right. Without proper care and attention that it, it, you can't, it can break some of the fundamentals of what we expect to be human, right? What mm -hmm. we consider to be human. And so, uh, you know, mimetic desire is what makes us and mm -hmm. desire captures us. Desire is outside of us and we catch it like a disease. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, people get into the same fashions and they will tell you if you ask somebody when they're getting the same hairstyle, everybody else is getting, no, I like it because it fits me. And it's like, well, really? I mean, why didn't you have that hairstyle back in 2004? You know, right. well, they, they can't answer that, you know, but they, what they really are doing is they're looking around the cues of what's cool and what's fashionable. Maybe they're looking on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, or watching TV, their favorite shows or going to high school, college, whatever. And they're trying to, okay, that guy or that girl is pretty on the, on the up of where I want to be. And that's where I'm going to kind of, fashion myself and that desire, you know, to, to look that certain way. Now, now mimetic desire can also look like the opposite because you can be so obsessed with what your neighbor's doing that you go to a high school, everybody's into the, you know, country Western uh, fashion. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I'm not doing this redneck stuff. I'm going to be, you know, emo, you know, or Gothic. Right. And so you're still looking at them for your cue, mm -hmm. but you're masking the mimesis by, you know, doing the opposite. Sure. And, and that doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that, you know, people get, oh, what are you saying? That it's all, you know, we're just copycats. Well, people get offended by that thought. You know, it's like, no, I truly love Star Wars because I love Star Wars, not because my friends loved it. I was into Star Wars before they were. You know? <laughs> they were the ones that came late to the party. I was into that indie band before anybody knew about that band. And well, now that, everybody likes it. I don't like it anymore. It's on radio. It's not cool anymore, right? That, that, does, that does create an interesting point, though, because someone has to has to begin the meme so right i mean it, we can't all be aping our way through life so who who what's the demographic that is is beginning this cycle if there is one or is it well, organically derived well i mean that's a good question i mean and, and there's debate in the folks that that study mimetic theory as to how mimetic are we are we totally is it all turtles all the way down right or is there some kind of intrinsic self. And I, I don't really have a, 
uh, a settled answer on that myself exactly but yeah because it seems I, to I, me like like there has to be a, an origin like if if we were purely mimetic we would probably never progress you know we would just be modeling and, and continuing on the same loop of what we've always done because we're just looking at others and doing what they're doing um, but there there are people that that break free i mean elon musk and and um, steve jobs and a few others come to mind that just kind of like go okay, we're going to, I'm going to dismiss the concept of what's possible or impossible. And I'm going to, you know, step into this great unknown. I mean, uh, certainly right. there, there are other historical figures that they could be memeing after as well, but they're in terms of like modern times and the people that are probably sur they're surrounded by, they're probably not really mimetically following any of their peers per se, but they are following perhaps historical examples of people who really thought outside the box. I don't know. I'm, I'm going deep on yeah. this one. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right on that. The, the idea is, is that, you know, I guess some people are not quite as super mimetic as others, but mm -hmm. we're all mimetic to, to some degree. Uh, and it is the foundational thing for what moves a lot of our desire and where we're going. Cause think about it this way like Steve Jobs, he had to learn coding from someone, right? So he sure. mimicked, he was imitating someone for this skill set. He imitated somebody for that skill set. And he, and so where innovation comes in is being able to intentionally, almost in a kind of, in, almost in a self-aware way, mimic the right role models and then combine them in an original uh, uh, combination mm, so see. that you get the new thing, right? Right, right. You know, somebody had to make the first airplane, but it was certain different things that they were imitating, engineering, this thing. And and think about like the Wright brothers. I'm, I don't I don't know their story, but they had to have some role model along the way that gave them their audacious spirit that they internalized and made their own. Right. Because sure. if they had people telling them, you know, if nobody modeled for them risk taking, they would have had no one to, you know, push them into that place now you could say well actually their parents were very risk averse and that's what they were rebelling against but that would be kind of a mimetic phenomenon because they were looking at the cues of their parents saying no 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 don't you ever do anything and doing i'm the just inverse. fantasizing right now i have no idea no, maybe the course. wright brothers parents were like no helicopter parents no you know <laughs> or helicopters like don't you do anything don't get on that slide you know and they're like i'm gonna show you one day yeah. you know and who knows but at some point you have to have those role models that give us that audacious spirit or give us that engineering talent or, and then you put those pieces together, you have birds flying, we're imitating that. How do they do that? What are they mm -hmm. doing there to do that? And all that comes combines together for that, that innovative first thing, right? That, that makes sense. Well, I, I'm certainly uh, mimetically driven from the Ron Paul movement and then Dave Smith as well. He kind of, sh he showed to me that you could have a, a actual career talking about liberty. And I, up until that point, I didn't think it was possible. Ron Paul showed to me that you could actually inspire people with a message of liberty. Up until that point in my life, I hadn't seen that. But, you know, Ron Paul was probably inspired by Murray Rothbard or Mises or, or you know, any of the inspirational thinkers from, from his childhood. Uh, so, or maybe his, you know, adulthood even, I don't know. Uh, so it's it's a really interesting concept. And as as you know, an individualist and someone who really strongly believes in the individual, I think it is a very important point to make that that regardless of our value of the individual, if we want to understand how systems work and how how we might progress the rights of the individual, 
we should definitely stay in tune with this concept and and realize that you know this is this is hardwired in, in a sense i mean the, the term aping even exists where so this is a this is a primal thing this is like this is from way way back the the apes even do it they they mimic each other that's why it's called aping and and you can apply it to human beings so um yeah very very profound points yeah and and what's helpful for for folks who want to spread liberty is to understand that what motivates human beings is not primarily reason. And I know mm -hmm. that's a, you know, we're not walking brains on a <laughs> stick. We, we are what we, we pick our politics based on a, on a need to fit in an identity. Even libertarians do, you know, and the idea is that you got to feel, you want to feel belonging. You don't want to be go to a place that doesn't feel aesthetically what you want to be around. I mean, someone could be a libertarian. They go into a room and everybody looks like a fundamentalist Baptist, but they're happy to be libertarian. You're like, ah, that's not my thing. I, I, this is not what I signed up for. Why mm -hmm. is my local libertarian party a bunch of fundamentalist Baptists that don't want to touch beer or anything? This is uh, so, but wait a second. They have all the non-aggression principle or whatever, but you see what I mean? What happens is, is that ultimately we're looking for an aesthetic. We're looking for a tribal identity. Even the most rugged individualists sometimes are sometimes the most mimetic not always, but you know, we, and, and, and I want to make it clear. Mimetic is not a bad thing. It's not a deficiency. It's yeah. exactly what makes us better than uh, the human, than other animals, you know, mm -hmm. because we're able to learn. We can learn things so fast because we're transmitting these desires back and forth and we're combining them in original ways, which is where innovation comes from. You know, right. How, right. how does the tools get created? How do, how does fire get created? The other animals are not doing that. It's us, you know, you know, you know, you have monkeys doing some basic tool making, you know, when they break a shell with a rock and stuff to get the oyster or whatever. But but by and large, this is something that we have mastered way beyond anybody else on planet Earth. And it's our greatest strength and also our greatest downfall. Because what Gerard says is that, you know, we get caught up in imitation, but it can easily go from positive to negative. And once it goes negative, it's hard to get it back positive. You know, that's why you have best friends. And all of a sudden, one day they decide to move in together and they hate each other for life. You know what I mean? They were best friends when they were far apart, but in close proximity, wait a second, you have the thermostat there. Are you kidding me? Wait a second. You leave food out this long, you leave the dishes for a week, you know? And so you, we were best buddies, but now that we have to have that proximity, it, it loss of self, the boundaries of the self. Right now, all of a sudden, it's rivalry. And that's what Gerard says, is that from afar, it's easy to get along. You know, we think today that our conflicts arise from difference. In reality, they arise from how similar we often are. Wow. And so, like, from a far away, it, you know, it's okay. But when we get closer and closer, the lines between murder and adoration are very thin. You know, that's where conflict breeds. That's where you get the idea of uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, that's where you get the idea that good fences make good neighbors. And I always point out for my Liberty friends that, you know, Rand Paul was attacked by his neighbor because they didn't know where, I mean, he had a dispute about where the property line was yep. and the clippings were like two inches or two, two millimeters over the property line or something. And that was an, I mean, and who knows what else of course was there, but the point is that was the triggering incident where he felt like he had lost a sense of himself and he needed to assert his sense of self in a real physical brutal way wow. with his neighbor. Right. But if they had, a, if they had a line there, if they had a fence there or something that might have averted the problem from being triggered to that level of aggression. Uh, but, but, but that, 
But that's that's why we need private property. That's why we need private contract and these things like that. They maintain the sense of self that's natural and healthy for a society so that we do not devolve into a war of all against all over scarce resources, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, what I was thinking, uh, you know, while you were saying that familiarity, familiarity breeds contempt, it's interesting that that usually when we have wars, though, we very much drive home our differences. We we propagandize the populace to to believe that they are lesser subhuman. Oftentimes, um, why it, if if this is correct, why is it necessary to otherize and demonize our opponents prior to like the most the most brutal of um, human behaviors? That's a great question, but that but that goes back to the the. Uh personal rivalries that start, which are manifested in these cultural wars, right? Okay. The personal rivalry, when you're in the middle of a conflict with a rival, you don't want to admit that you're similar. You want to perceive every kind of difference imaginable. Mm-hmm. So from a, from a third party vantage point, you know, like parents, they'll see a, two kids fighting and say, I don't care who started it. You're stopping it. And in the moment of the conflict, you're like, no, you don't understand. This guy's been bugging me all day, and you're just seeing the last little bit of it, and you're trying to make it look like we're equally guilty. And the, and you and it's very infuriating, right? Yeah. But that's that. But from the far, you know, people in conflict look almost identical. And uh-huh. I tell you, the great text Looney Tunes gives you a great illustration of this. You have the Bugs Bunny gets into a conflict with Elmer Fudd or whoever. And it turned, I don't even know, are we allowed to talk about Bugs Bunny or not? Oh, Has that sure. been canceled I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he turns into a storm, like a storm cloud, and you see little hands and stuff kicking out of the storm cloud, the dust cloud. Right. And then you'll see Bugs Bunny come out of the cloud, and he looks at the camera like, can you believe this? This is ridiculous. Who's he, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what conflict looks like. Hmm. Not and when you're in it, when you're in it, you still feel like I'm Bugs Bunny, and this is Elmer Fudd, and we are totally different. But in the but the bigger picture is when you look at rivals left versus right, the more Republicans and Democrats fight for the same power, the more they look the same. Mm. They they copy each other, and uh, you know that's why you have this this escalation of extremes. It seems like they're different. If you ask a, a, a you know a left wing person who likes Trump versus a Nancy Pelosi fan, they're gonna say there's nothing to do with us. We have nothing in common. We couldn't be further apart. But from the broader perspective, for those who are not participating in that tribal warfare, they look almost identical on a lot of things. Yes. Same government policy, same spending, same war on drugs, same debt, same war, same blah, 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 same managed trade deals, you know, mm-hmm. the same stuff. And uh, and then, you know, you see the left, they did their riots, the Summer of Love riots, and then the right had to do their little version of that in January 6th. Yep. And they just keep mimicking each other. Well, you know? I, I think that your analysis is correct. Uh, I'm concerned, though, that I'm now questioning my own feelings, but I don't think that they're incorrect in that I do think these groups are very similar, and I do think that they are very dissimilar from our perspective or, or our desires. I mean, perhaps they have the same desires, but they do not have at all the same steps to get there. So uh, how do we reconcile that? How do we, how do we shift the mimetic theory to, to get people to start to advocate for freedom? That's a great question. And it, and it starts again with deconstructing the self. I think it's important for folks to realize in the liberty movement that you cannot persuade people. We're not walking brains on sticks. We're desire and passion-based creatures. 
But I, I do want to say that, you know, even in the liberty movement, you know, there's a lot of conflict over the, the smallest nuances. True. And libertarians will fight more over another libertarian being wrong on a sacred principle than they will with someone who's in a communist or a, or a conservative. I see that so all that, day, That's, every again, day. a very mimetic phenomenon, right? The closer you are, the more fighting there is possible. Farther away, okay, you're over there, I'm over there. I'm, I'm libertarian, you're communist. Yep. Now that we're liber oh, you're not libertarian, libertarian. Oh no, no, you know it's it's like this 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 insanity, you know that happens. But we but we we do this all the time. You yeah. can see it in the uh, childhood game of like copycat. I say something, you know, and you keep imitating me over and over again until I lose my mind. You know, stop talking to me. Stop talking to me. Hey, I said stop. Hey, I said stop. You know, and it drives you nuts. Right. That's what it's like when libertarians are fighting over who's the most purist. You know, it's like, wait a second, you're you're a fascist. No, you're a liber you're a socialist. You're a this or that. No, you're. It's because you're losing your sense of self. You have constructed this this application of a theory, and that you've maintained your sense of self and differentiation from others based on coming to the conclusion that you've got it right. And when somebody else says, "No, I am libertarian, and I've come to these conclusions." it makes you feel like you're losing a sense of yourself mm -hmm. and it makes you pull back. And then that's what Gerard calls the, uh, that would be like a double bind where you're attracted and repulsed at the same time in conflict with one another. Interesting. And we see this all the time, you know, that we're obsessed with beating our rivals more than we are actually trying to pursue the thing that made us to rival them in the first place. For example, how many businesses spend their entire, uh, time obsessed with copying and beating their competition rather than doing something truly unique and different most right so so many resources are wasted and squandered just trying to keep up with whatever the latest trend is in the industry rather than pioneering a monopoly and creating your own uncontested market space that will not have so competition is not something that we should seek out in general it can be healthy I'm not saying it's totally evil, but generally speaking, competition is to be avoided because competition gets you more in proximity to being obsessed with beating the other and that mm -hmm. tit for tat, keeping up with the Joneses well, or and keeping up with the company or whatever that you're beating. And there's economic terms for this. It's called blue water is where you, you enter an industry that basically doesn't exist yet. You create the industry or you create a niche within an industry so you don't have a competitor. So it makes sense. And, and I wanted to go back briefly to your other point in that when it comes to libertarian infighting, I, I, I've described it in a different way, but I think this is your description is probably a better one, but I'll, I'll give my, my opinion of it is that like when I see someone who's a self-described libertarian saying something that is counter to my belief system, I get far more offended and I, ha I can have far more leniency and kindness and I can even be more supportive of someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who is not a libertarian, but she's very good on the war issue. She's terrible on economics. But I look at with her, I'm able to look at the similarities and be like, oh, thank God we have someone, someone in the mainstream who's talking about what I believe in. But then if a libertarian comes on and he goes like, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, property tax is OK for a community. And I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so, because yeah, that's the sacred object that you feel like it, it, it defines you. And so I'm not right. saying you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're wrong or wrong or right about the thing. It just that that's a sacred space for you. Right. That's your sacred principles. You believe that those principles are not to be trifled with, not mm -hmm. to be abused, not to be lied about. And if somebody takes them and takes them in a different direction, they're violating your sense of the sacred, which is in some sense, the sacred. Here's an interesting thing. 
The sacred is a social context. It's a social container that we put ourselves into that, hey, I am libertarian because I have applied it this way, this way. And then you find other people who also say, yes, I think you're genius. I think you're totally right. right. And then you create that crowd, that community of rugged individualists. But ultimately, the sacred is the fact that you're bound, you're bound up by a shared commitment to a sacred um, distillation of principles. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get this caucus and that caucus and this within the same little group. Yep. But they're but they're really not excited about the broader picture. They're excited about the sacred uh, differentiation that they have maintained for their little tribe. Mm -hmm. And and this gets into what you know Gerard sees in, in human history that you see, you know, we have these rivals, we have these rivalries. And the question is, is how are we still here as a species if we go on and on and on and on and on with violence? Once we get into violence. So you're doing a speech and I come up to you afterwards and, or no, I don't, or, uh, yeah, let's say, yeah, you're doing a speech and we get, we hang out afterwards and you shake, you reach to shake your hand, to shake my hand and I pull back. And you're going to be like, what are you doing? What, what, what's your problem? You didn't like what I said. Mm-hmm. You think you're better than me? And then you might give an indication to me that I, I saw what you did. Okay, you're you're being a jerk. And then I'm going to look at what you did and say, well, yeah, that's why I didn't shake his hand in the first place. You see how he thinks he's better than everybody? So we <laughs> confirm what we want to confirm uh -huh. in the things that we do. You know, We think someone cuts us off in traffic because they're a jerk. Maybe they were running to a, a really bad situation where someone's in hurt. So we make them a finger. And they say, why the heck can't this guy just leave me alone? It's just traffic. I'm trying to save someone's life. <laughs> so you give them an indication. And before you know it, you hate each other over nothing. Someone loses a life over stuff like this. It's right. just meaninglessness because we're, we, we reciprocate good and we reciprocate evil too. And uh, once something turns evil or, or, or vicious or aggressive, it's hard to turn it back good. Mm -hmm. It's hard to turn it back. And that's where, you know, Jesus comes in as a social Aikido practitioner and he's able to disrupt with social body language, things he does, he's able to dismantle uh, uh, mimetic aggression. Yep. He's able to dismantle in his human interactions. He's able to dismantle crowd phenomenon. See, this is where, you know, this is where the, you know, some of the fun stuff is for Gerard's theory uh, for libertarians is that, you know, they're always talking about the crowd and groupthink and all this stuff. And that's where, you know, the second part of Gerard's theory, the first part of Gerard's theory is mimetic desire which is that individual understanding of why we want the things that we want, you know? And, and it's crystallized in a story like you see two toddlers in a playground and they, one grabs the toy and immediately the other kid really, really wants it. And at first the kid who wanted it first, you know, he didn't really care about it. He was just like, well, this looks fun. But now that the other guy's grabbing it from him, he's like, no, I really want it. Pull it back, give it back. And that's because he caught, so the first one was just playing with something. This guy catches the desire. Oh, I want that toy too. And now he's kindled his desire for it too. That creates rivalry. Gotcha. Right? So there has to be a way to dispel that bad energy or else we would have ceased to exist as a species. Because in the human record is that I kill your friend, you kill my whole neighborhood. And then who's ever left from that wants to kill your entire race or your whole country or your city. And that's what we have, this escalation of violence. So how did we like survive if that's what we tend to fall into? Right. And, and Gerard says that it, it happens. If you look at the ancient records of anthropology, that there's this common theme of, of, of sacrifice. 
of sacrificing one for the greater good. And so Gerard is trying to understand, okay, so how did that come about? How is it that in China, ancient China, ancient uh, Germany, ancient all these places, Mediter you know, Mediterranean region, all these different places where they all, you know, why do they all do a kind of sacrifice of an animal or a human being as a kind of sacred event that binds the community together? Because remember the word religion in the Latin root means to bind together. Hmm. So religion is not about what, you know, to popular, you know, anti-science approach to religion is that religion is just what you do when you want to come up with creative stories, just fanciful, Hey, sitting around the campfire. Well, what do you think? I think that star, that's a God. Let's talk about that. And it's just like, you know, you know what's, what's happening is it doesn't make any sense. Why is religion so ubiquitous and why is sacrifice and human sacrifice tied into the origins of religion? Mm -hmm. And Gerard is saying that basically when we're stuck imitating each other, we're stuck in a feedback loop of con when it gets into aggression, right? Mm -hmm. You you insult me. I insult you worse. You insult me worse the next day. I steal a chicken from your hut. You steal a goat. And it just goes on and on and on. But if a community is spreading that bad blood and it's spreading that bad tension, maybe there's a famine, maybe there's a plague, it can easily turn into finger pointing into the same direction. Mm -hmm. So they're pointing at each other. Everybody's pointing at each other. It's a tension Maybe there's a plague. Maybe people are blaming someone for this new virus. You know, don't uh, you wear a mask? That's ridiculous. No, you don't wear a mask. That's why we're dying left and right. You know, mm -hmm. all this stuff. We can imagine primordial human situations where plagues and famines and things are happening and it's creating stress. And you feel like, I don't know what's wrong, but the kid in my house just died. And I don't know. I think you did something about it. What did you do? And, and what happens is a prevailing accusation starts to take hold in a community because you say, you know what? I, I kind of agree with you. I do think that person maybe did something, which is why your child died of that random illness. And so it starts to prevail. And it's like a snowball of finger pointing starts to lead into a certain direction. And that person who is chosen as the scapegoat, they don't believe in the moment that they're choosing a scapegoat. They truly believe the person's guilty. And that, and that person who has chosen to be the victim or the chosen to be the scapegoat is someone who has an arbitrary difference, could be a handicap, could be they're too tall, too pretty, too ugly. They have to be someone that doesn't have a lot of social currency usually, because if you kill them and they have a lot of social currency, their posse is going to come kick your tail. So it's got to be somebody who can't really fight back. They don't got a lot of resources, or maybe they're a king who has stayed on the throne too long. <laughs> there's a there's a one tribe in Africa that when they uh, explorers came to visit them, the tribe was very into the kings and rulers were very interested in the black dye for the hair because they had a rule in their society that when they saw the gray hair, the king had to be sacrificed, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so they were trying to put the black dye to, 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 to avert the sacrifice from happening. <laughs> so all of these different people who have a differentiation where they don't have a lot of uh, clout to fight back can be an easy target for scapegoating. And think about it. When you're in a sea of accusation, it's very easy to feel like you can com combine your powers together and unite based on dealing with a common enemy. I mean, we know this happens all the time. We feel it. You know, go back to that toddler, the two toddlers, maybe a puppy dog walks by and they start poking at the puppy, puppy dog's tail and pulling it. That's kind of like a scapegoat. You know, they've diverted right. their attention away from being obsessed with each other. And now they're going to imitate each other poking at this little poor little dog 
who's kind of like a little scapegoat in the moment, breaks the tension, unites them towards a new person to torment. Uh, and then maybe the, maybe the parents step in and pull it away and it's dissolved the whole situation. Right. But, but that's what happens when you see the record of human history. You see this, this need to do ritual human sacrifice, usually tied into a good harvest or averting a famine. Why? Why did they do this all over the world? It wasn't just a random thing. It was a function. It was a social function that without it, we may have ceased to exist. In fact, there's evidence that cultures that didn't practice ritual cannibalism didn't exist. They ceased to exist. They were extinct because they, they didn't know how to deal with their conflict. Their mimetic bad blood would spill off into a, a, a society that was not able to get along, a society that was not able to contain itself and get itself together, and a society that was not able to compete with other rival tribes who were using ritual cannibalism to maintain and divert tensions onto a common victim. Wow. Well, that, that seems like a natural cognate to what we're experiencing today with cancel culture in, in that, you know, we are essentially offering up, you know, actors and politicians uh, for cancellation. And that's, that could be kind of the modern variant of human sacrifice almost. Is that, it have is. you considered that? Yeah, it is. Okay. It, it is. And it isn't, it's, it's a mutation that, that took place. Uh, because of the influence of the Christian text in the Western culture. So the Gospels come in, and Gerard says, you know, this is where Gerard gets a little unpopular with academia, because his first, you know, he comes out with this book. It's not his first book. His first book was about literature. He was looking at the similar patterns of all the great Western novels and playwrights, like, you know, like a Shakespeare. And, and he was looking at a Don Quixote with, you know, Michael Cervantes and all these different people who are engaging in these great works of literature that have a similar pattern that he's noticing about how people fall into conflict and fall out of conflict, how people fall into love, but fall out of love, you know? And he looked at the triangular nature of desire that you are, you're desiring what your model is desiring. But at some point, the, the object of the desire fades away and you're just obsessed with beating the, the, the model. So he would look at that and say, he would look at like, and, and this is just practical stuff. You see it everywhere. Like, the story of a man who's in love with another woman. He's married to a woman he's been with for years. And there's another muse, a muse who comes along and seems so different, so far away, so different from what he has. He desires her. So he divorces his wife and says, here I am. And she's like, wait a second. I don't like you anymore mm -hmm. because she was desiring him because somebody else was desiring mm -hmm. him. And mm -hmm. once he's now exclusively hers, it's like, wait a second, you're not as exciting and intoxicating anymore because you're, all, just, all of a not, sudden, you're not someone's not desiring you anymore. All, all, I, of a, I was, all of a sudden, she sees all the problems with him that she was overlooking before. And the same for him, right? Yep. The same for him. Now he's like, wait a second. So, wait, you have problems too? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I thought this was just going to be romantic delight forever. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, you have flaws too? You know, because as you get in close proximity, you see the, the flaws of anybody, right? Exactly. And that again creates rivalry, which is what's caused him to be dissatisfied with his first situation and seek out something novel and different. Mm -hmm. But as he gets closer to that, rivalry starts because they share so much space and they lose their sense of self and they become more uh, power grabbing over who's in power or who's this or that. This is the nature of conflict. So that's the first part. The second part is when Gerard says, okay, so Violence in the Sacred is his book where he says, he looks at all these mythologies and he says, wait a second, they all have this same pattern where they're concealing something. They're, they're covering something, they're covering up something. Mm 
And he looks and he says, wait a second, look at the gods. The gods often have a disfigurement. They have a handicap. They have a disability. This God walks with a gate that's twisted. Why? And he's saying, maybe that's a cover-up for something that was happening thousands of years before that myth was written. That was a tradition, you know, that we scapegoat someone who's different. Mm. Someone who's handicapped, he can't fight back. The gods hate him because he's got a disfigurement. Therefore, we'll take him out because he's cursed our land. That's why we don't have the, that's why we have a famine. That's why we have a plague. So we all, he's different in some arbitrary way or she's different. We, we destroy them. We send them out of the camp or we, you know, we, or we eat them in some earlier situations or we kill them. And then we feel satisfied. We feel relief. Ah, that's, that was it. <laughs> right. But what he noticed is that in mythology, the gods oftentimes were depicted in their earliest myths as being mischievous and causing taboos to be broken. Mm -hmm. They were accused of incest and patricide. They were accused of raping women by changing their shape. As Zeus comes down like a swan onto mortal women. All these things are kind of mischievous, but then later on in some of the later myths of these gods, they're doing salvific things. They're saving the society. So how can a God be both mischievous and taboo breaking, but also salvific? Well, it makes sense when you think about how Gerard's thinking of the scapegoat mechanism. Someone's different. Therefore, you accuse them of, of being naughty or, you know, violating a taboo. Maybe it's a real accusation. Maybe it's not always that it's made up, but oftentimes it is. It's made up that, oh, you caused this because you're a demon or you're, you're, you're possessed with magic, dark magic, or, uh, you know, I saw you with a goat. Maybe you were breeding with a goat. You're a sick, bestial person. Now we're going to, you know, scandalize you, destroy you. And that creates relief. Mm. So that's what he sees in mythology. That's what he's writing about in violence and the sacred. He's looking at ritual and taboo. He's looking at rites of passage, and he's seeing that it fits this picture that mythology is actually a cover-up for a collective murder, and that the heart of religion is this attempt to turn that spontaneous scapegoat murder at the heart of primordial societies and to, to use it in an intentional way to contain violence so that it doesn't spiral out of control and devolve into all against all scandal. Because that you're just, even if you don't kill each other all directly, you'll be ineffective when another tribe comes along and takes your resources because you've got too much uh, inefficiency of, of getting along. Right. And so violence in the sacred is his book that puts him on the map. He becomes an intellectual star in, in France and in Paris. They treat, they're intellectuals like we treat movie stars over here. They, you know, there's a big deal. And then his next book comes out and that ruins a lot of his prestige because his book is called things hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's where he basically says, now I understood all of this because I understood what the Bible was saying. And they're like, Oh, come on, get, get, get this guy off the stage. We thought we had the guy who was going to deconstruct all religion and destroy it completely. Just totally take it apart and savage it. And this dude is taking the one religion that we are most annoyed with because of our Western traditions. And we're too close to it for comfort. And he's saying that's where he got his provocative deconstruction of all other myths and religion. <laughs> yes. That's where he got it. So it's like, Oh goodness, this is such a disappointment. And so he <laughs> becomes not as cool anymore in academia when he, when he comes out with this book, what he's saying in the Bible, and it's a big topic and we could do a lot with this, but I'll try to sketch just a little bit. 
is that he's saying that the Bible takes the story of mythology and it takes it out of the hands of the crowd, which is the winners of history. And it puts it into the perspective of the victim of the scapegoat lynching. And so not always there's texts in the Bible that conceal the victim, Mm -hmm. but that's what he calls a text in travail, meaning the text is arguing with itself. Mm. And that's why the Bible is an anthology of different books, different authors, different things, but it's all arguing with this concept that can understand why we are the way we are. And see, you know, the Bible is talking about anthropology, but all we usually put onto it is theology. Right. Okay. So tell us who God is. What's his name? His name's Jesus or his name's Bob or whatever. Okay. Tell me who to worship. You know, it's like a checklist. Okay. What's he want? Okay. Do what, who, who do I pay? Who's how much is it? 10%. Okay. We, we're thinking like a theology, right? We don't want to look closer to home and see that the Bible's actually got a lot to say about anthropology and that anthropology, the study of man, like who we are, why do we have conflict? Why do we have war? Why do we desire what we desire? Mm-hmm. It's all in the Bible. And that those, those cultures that have been steeped in the Bible have a kind of technology at their disposal to allow them to basically get advantage over other cultures because they're deconstructing their origins. They kind of know how to be more intentional in the way they construct things. Like we were talking about earlier with innovation Mm -hmm. and uh, that, you know, the Bible is very, you know, you look at thou shalt not covet in the 10th commandment. The emphasis is not on the action. It's on the neighbor. It says thou shalt not covet thy neighbors, this, that, this, or anything else that belongs to the neighbor. So the emphasis is on don't covet your neighbor's being itself. So it's very radical. You look at the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother out of envy, that bad mimetic desire. And out of that killing, it says he founds the first city. So that's that's the ribbon-cutting ceremony of politics in the state, a murder. You know? The, you know, he, it says he murders his brother, and then he creates the first city. And isn't it interesting that everywhere we go around archaeology, we continually find uh, bones of real victims who were laid in the cornerstones of the inauguration of a new town or a new wall or a new temple or a new bridge. It's called immurement. It's the idea of laying a live human sacrifice. You put a stone down, and then you say, we've blessed the new city. That's your ribbon cutting. So market ribbon cuttings are you have cheap cookies and a big ridiculous scissor that the mayor brings out. But the state's ribbon cutting is this ritual sacrifice of the scapegoat mechanism, which becomes this unite. Because because when you when you read the text, when they say, why are we sacrificing a girl to this laying of the stone on her? Why are we doing this? Or sometimes they would entomb them in the, into the actual wall. They would actually put them in the wall and then they would build the bricks around it and they'd die in there. Why? Because they would say it blesses the success of the, of the, of the, of the new city or the new temple right. or the new bridge, you know, like if we don't sacrifice and you go to Japan, you see they sacrifice a 16 year old girl in the foundations of the bridge they're building over a raging river. If we don't sacrifice it, there's a good chance that the river will consume the, the construction and we'll lose our lives, lots of us. So we propit- we propitiate our ancestors or the gods of the spirits of the, of the water with this offering of somebody else's life in our stead. And the same thing you see that in these other stories of, of immurement or, you know, you look at the story of the ancient city of Jericho and it says, anybody who creates this city will cost them their firstborn's life. 
And, and we look at that and we say, oh, the Bible's so primitive. No, it's actually very, very progressive because it's deconstructing what we're doing all along through history, and it's critiquing it in subtle ways that ultimately culminates in Jesus's encounter with this scapegoat mechanism. And that's what we call the passion of Christ, the idea that Jesus is accused, the collective, the state, and the religion unites together, and they say, this guy has got to die. It is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. That's what Caiaphas says. And he, in the text says he says that, and he doesn't know what he's saying, but he's revealing to us, he's breaking the fourth wall. The Bible's breaking the fourth wall for a moment and allowing the audience to say, oh, wait, that's the sausage making of the state. That's the sausage making of our whole culture that spawns the state, that one man should die for the whole nation so that it would not perish. And so Jesus intentionally comes into history. And again, you don't have to get into the theology about whether he's God or whatever. You can just look at it anthropologically here. And he intentionally performs the role of the scapegoat in a scapegoat ritual so that we can see it. It's like once you do the, it's like those, remember that guy that used to do the mask, the mask magician. And he would explain how all the magicians were doing their acts oh, yeah, and yeah, hated yeah. them. That's what Jesus did. He, he, he performed the magic trick that we've always been doing unconsciously. And he was like, no, I'm going to perform the role of the scapegoat. And then my followers are going to write about what I did and what happened to me. And you're going to have a deconstruction of the very psychological mechanism that has been hidden from your eyes because you were always convinced that you were right to collectively murder and sacrifice some for the greater good. Wow. That was incredible. <laughs> I, am, I am blown away, man. Uh, as, you're, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about all the modern uh, you know, examples would be like uh, George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Duncan Lemp. Like the, it's, it is interesting. We still, and, and it's, it makes sense uh, even beyond what you're describing. It makes sense that you would take a, a victim or a, or a human sacrifice and make them a, a siren call to unite your, your people, so to speak. Uh, but this, this really delves deep into the you know anthropological explanation for why why we do it and uh, i'm curious after all of this what what has your conclusion been about uh, i i think i think for for me the other thing i was thinking about while you were talking is that you know it seems to me that, that perhaps this is why libertarianism fails why why we don't um get traction in that we First off, we largely abandon religion, which I am not personally religious, but I have recently started to really consider it more deeply just because of how uh, you know beneficial and galvanizing it's been for humanity over eons. It's also been divisive, of course, but um, it's also helped in evolution in some ways. So is that, is that your belief that, that perhaps the liberty movement is not headed in the right direction because they've abandoned some of these ideas? Yeah, I would say that Jesus is the founder of the liberty movement, but people don't want to, they don't want to let him touch it mm -hmm. because they, because they've had bad experiences. You see, it's all, it always goes back to role models. Mm -hmm. You see? Well, he's not a bad role, role model. models that, what's that? <laughs> I said he, he's not a bad role model. Right. But other people who say that they're followers of him end mm -hmm. up ticking mm -hmm. off people and then they never want to hear that name again because, because Jesus's message is so beautiful. And then you go to churches and someone does something or there's a scandal or there's adultery or, and it just, it's such a fall. It's such a, it's such a letdown when people, well, I, you know, the Christians I know, they're always so self-righteous and, and some of it's made up and some of it's real. 
But there's Jesus' story is so beautiful that we don't want to look at it face to face because it, it cuts us like a knife. Like there's an idea that a person would do this and live like that. And yet 2000 years later, they're still singing songs about him. He had the ultimate, he was the ultimate loser, but he became the ultimate king of history. I mean, we'd split our time by this man. So I tell people, if he wasn't God, it's even a greater miracle that <laughs> someone can have such an impact be, by being murdered at 30. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's incredible. And now people come up with, oh yeah, the Roman empire is all made up and all this stuff, and all that stuff. When you look at anthropology, it's, it's, you see how unscientific such a theory would be that it was all made up, mm -hmm. but ultimately, you know, we have these bad role models that say, Hey, I'm for Jesus. And then they go, let's go bomb Iraq. And you're like, wait a second. Jesus says, do not resist evil with violence. God desires murky mercy, not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. How do you get the sacrifice part? But see, we we're so we're haunted by the cross of Christ in our Western culture that every type of sacrifice that we try to initiate today, we always have to do so with Christian language, you know? So we're going to go liberate Iraq. That's mercy. We're just going to do mercy via sacrifice, bomb them into submission. That was profound. They don't, they didn't do that back when Jesus was around, by the way, the Roman empire didn't say, Oh, we're going to go invade this country because we're going to help them vote and help women have rights. No, they were like, no, we're going to go take them over because we're better than them. And we're going to dominate them. And they're going to learn to try to keep up with how civilized we are. They didn't care about the, the, the oppressed people. We're going to go to these barbarians and help their women read. No, they were like, no, we run this show. We are the best and we will dominate and consume that which we need to consume for the glory of the empire. Mm -hmm. And today, because we're haunted by the cross, everything has to be done in the name of protecting a scapegoat or protecting someone who could be sacrificed. Hmm. So we have to, we went into the first desert storm because of the lie of babies being yanked out of incubators. Yep. We, you know, we go to Assad because of the lie of the, of the uh, gas attacks. sarin gas on children that was found out to be uh, something that the guys that we were arming were doing probably. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, go, we do all these things with the narrative that we're doing it in the name of defending scapegoats so that we can sneak in our desire to scapegoat again. So we always scapegoat, but now, so in the, now we do so in the name of victims. That's what Jesus did. He broke the scapegoat mechanism so that we can see it, but we are slow to see how we participated in it ourselves. Mm. We always believe it's our neighbor that's scapegoating. So when you tell someone, hey, does scapegoating exist? They'll say, yes, let me tell you how many times I've been scapegoated. They never tell you when they have scapegoated somebody. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, we can scapegoat people who are guilty. Like, for example, you know, like Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton has done a lot of criminal bad stuff. But you can have this kind of mentality where it's like you scandalize that person as some enemy other that's so beyond anything that you would do if you were not in her shoes, too. And part of what the Bible does is it helps you have humility to see that the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of man, you know, just like uh, Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn yeah. And now he was a Christian. He got that from the Bible. So the idea is that humility to say, look, this is wrong, but can I see the humanity in Hillary Clinton? Can I see her? Because I heard that she was abused by her father. Can I see Hillary Clinton after all the carnage that she's done, after pillaging Haiti, and all the horrible things. She never gets any justice. Why does she get away with it? Can I still see her as a three-year-old scared of her father? That's what the Bible gets you to do. It gets you to have that humility, that empathy. And if we would spread this story that Jesus is allowing us to see and spread it truly and live it out, we would create a mimetic contagion 
of nonviolence and non-aggression and the things that we need to heal this culture. And ultimately, the state would wither away. So it's not about opposing the state. It's about, from the bottom up, creating a contagion of culture of nonviolence and solidarity with our enemies, forgiveness. It doesn't mean you excuse it. You have to have boundaries. You can't allow people to murder. There needs to be a separation if you murder someone. But, but, you, but you don't see them as some alien other that you could never be yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Having, having compassion even for the evil amongst you or, or realizing that given a different upbringing or a different path, you could put, perhaps have been that same person. And I think that that's, that's something that I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I've gotten better at is having a greater sense of humility, a greater sense of appreciation for all of the blessings of my life and how I got to be where I'm at and, you know, not have taken this path that I would describe as evil and in, in being a warmonger of sorts. And um, I think that, man, this was extraordinarily profound. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate you having me on. And I'd, I'd love to explore any other follow-up thoughts, you know, maybe at another time we could do some more deeper dive. Into oh, we've, the... we have absolutely got to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was really as good. close to a religious experience as I've had in years. So thank you wow. so much. Wow, well, that's... that's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. It was brilliant. It was absolutely yeah. brilliant. So thank well, you thank so much, you. David. Uh, go ahead and tell people again where they can find you because after this, I assure you people are going to be seeking you out. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, again, you can just, uh, if you search for my name, David Gronoski on whatever podcast platform that you like, you can subscribe there. And, uh, and we have a, a daily show that is live from four to 6 PM Eastern time, um, uh, Monday through Friday called a neighbor's choice. Mm -hmm. And I do that in a radio style, you know, so it, it's a podcast too, but it sounds radio style. I do an old school style radio format. And then I do a things hidden podcast. That's also on that same podcast feed, uh, of, you know, my name, David Gronoski. Perfect. If, if you want to go to our website, it's a neighborschoice.com, which has, I do a film series on there. That's pretty cool. That gets into these kind of conversations. And I'm always looking for scapegoats. I like to tell that's the, that's the premise of a neighbor's choice. We try to find scapegoats, mm -hmm. the person who's in prison for life for a first time, nonviolent offense. We have them call into the show love it, and talk about life live on radio as a call in guest on live radio. That's we're doing this on stations that carry, you know, the Rush Limbaugh show, show and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck. We're going right into the heart of the heartland of conservatism. And we're saying, hey, here's your scapegoats. Mm -hmm. Not just you, but all of our scapegoats, because mm -hmm. we send these people out into the hell of prison. And we need to reconcile with that. And we need to understand that we should not keep doing this because our scapegoating is what's tearing us apart. Mm -hmm. Lisa, that's the saying from that movie. Uh, the, the room, mm. but that, that whole idea is that our scapegoating is tearing us apart. We're tearing up our society. We can't get along anymore. That's why I cancel culture. We're flailing around canceling Dr. Seuss while electing a Joe Biden with 50 years of mass incarceration and mass bombing. Right. We are haunted by the cross, but we don't want to let go of it because we're afraid all the people that voted for Biden are afraid that if they didn't vote for Biden, that a, e a more evil monster in Donald Trump would scapegoat more people. But it's a fantasy. Right. Obama deported more people than, than Trump. Yep. Obama literally murdered with his foreign policy more people than Donald Trump did. Yeah, and Biden but yet has... one guy gets a Netflix special and the other guy's canceled from society. Right. Wait a second. What morality are we basing this on? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Not, 
not any not any sense of morality that I want to participate in. That's for damn sure. I, I cannot tell you how great that lecture sermon, whatever you want to call it, was. I, I'm genuinely blown away. So I I'm Thank sure you. that you've you've had a tremendous amount of success with this message and. And uh, I cannot wait to do it again. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. World premiere. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening Scared Hollywood lefties lyrical fappening A typo with Luke might bring them nooses We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Allowable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic to rip a 59 Miles to Ray showed that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping ain't rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show.